0: Hello, and welcome back to the Zine. Sorry about that short hiatus, but it was necessary, and uh, hopefully we won't have to do that again. Man, Volume 3. I can't believe we've been at this for 25 episodes in six months now, and we're really starting to find our groove, I think. This volume will be a little shorter than the others, only ten issues, since we had to take a short break. Of course, that really only matters for the mythical omnibus I keep mentioning. I could do 12 episodes, but I like to keep the dates nice and tidy, beginning and ending with the months. And, I mean, it's my name on the tin, so I can run it however I want. So there! Ha! So we're really going to lean into the whole serialized story thing. I dig the idea, and it makes it feel more like an actual literary magazine, you know? I've got three of them coming at you this volume, not all at once, mind you, but I like having one running story paired up with a few standalones. First up is Bear Trap by Alan E. Norse. I'd say it's pretty timely, but it's about war, and unfortunately, that's always pretty timely. But before that, we've got another fun ghost story. Really, folks, about half my material is ghost stories, and I'm astounded by how many ways you can make a ghost story fresh and original. This one by Elsie Brown is rather charming, until you suddenly run smack into the black cook whose sole purpose is to have her stereotype solve the story's central conflict complete with the written-in colored dialect and casual racial slurs. It was much easier to just remove the character entirely. It doesn't take away from the humor of the ending, and hopefully you won't notice that the story wraps up without actually solving the problem because the character of the cook affects nothing whatsoever. I'll elaborate a little more after the story. So let's go help Mr. John Halleck through his writer's block and come up with a shady plot. (laughs) A Shady Plot by Elsie Brown. So I sat down to write a ghost story. Jenkins was responsible. Halleck, he had said to me, give us another on the supernatural this time. Something to give them the horrors, that's what the public wants, and your ghosts are live propositions. Well, I was in no position to contradict Jenkins, for as yet his magazine had been the only one to print my stuff. So I had said, precisely, in the deepest voice I was capable of, and had gone out. I hadn't the shade of an idea, but at the time that didn't worry me in the least. You see, I had often been like that before, and in the end things had always come my way. I didn't in the least know how or why. It had all been rather mysterious. You understand... I didn't specialize in ghost stories, but more or less, they seemed to specialize in me. A ghost story had been the first fiction I had written. Curious how that idea for a plot had come to me out of nowhere after I had chased inspiration in vain for months. Even now, whenever Jenkins wanted a ghost, he called on me, and I had never found it healthy to contradict Jenkins. Jenkins always seemed to have an uncanny knowledge as to when the landlord or the grocer were pestering me, and he'd done to me for a ghost. And somehow I'd always been able to dig one up for him, so I'd begun to get a bit cocky as to my ability. So I went home and sat down before my desk and sucked at the end of my pencil and waited. But nothing happened. Pretty soon my mind began to wander off on other things, decidedly unghostly and material things, such as my wife's shopping, and how on earth I was going to cure her of her alarming tendency to take every new fad that came along and work it to death. But I realized that would never get me any place, so I went back to staring at the ceiling. "This writing business is delightful, isn't it?" I said sarcastically at last, out loud too. You see, I had reached the stage of imbecility when I was talking to myself. Yes, said a voice at the other end of the room. I should say it is. I admit I jumped. Then I looked around. It was twilight by this time, and I had forgotten to turn on the lamp. The other end of the room was full of shadows and furniture. I sat staring at it and presently noticed something just taking shape. It was exactly like watching one of these moving picture cartoons being put together. First an arm came out, then a bit of sleeve of a stiff white shirt-waist, then a leg and a plaid skirt, until at last there she was complete. Whoever she was. She was long and angular, with enormous fishy eyes behind big bone-rimmed spectacles, and her hair in a tight wad at the back of her head. Yes, I seemed able to see right through her head, and a jaw, well, it looked so solid that for the moment I began to doubt my very own senses and believe she was real after all. She came over and stood in front of me and glared, yes, positively glared down at me, although, to my knowledge, I had never laid eyes on the woman before, to say nothing of giving her cause to look at me like that. I sat still, feeling pretty helpless, I can tell you, and at last she barked, "What are you gaping at?" I swallowed, though I hadn't been chewing anything. "Nothing," I said, "absolutely nothing! My dear lady, I was merely waiting for you to tell me why you had come. And, excuse me, but do you always come in sections like this? I should think your parts might get mixed up sometimes. Didn't you send for me? She crisped. Imagine how I felt at that. Why, no. I i don't seem to remember. Look here. Haven't you been calling on heaven and earth all afternoon to help you write a story? I nodded. And then a possible explanation occurred to me, and my spine got cold. Suppose this was the ghost of a stenographer applying for a job. I had had an advertisement in the paper recently. I opened my mouth to explain that the position was filled, and permanently so, but she stopped me. And when I got back to the office for my last case and was ready for you, didn't you switch off to something else and sit there driveling so I couldn't attract your attention until just now? I... I'm very sorry, really. Well, you needn't be, because I just came to tell you to stop bothering us for assistance. You ain't going to get it. We're going on strike. What? You don't have to yell at me. I i didn't mean to yell, I said humbly, but I'm afraid I didn't quite understand you. You said you were going on strike. Don't you know what a strike is? Not another plot do you get from us. I stared at her and wet my lips. Is... Is that where they've been coming from? Of course, where else? But my ghosts aren't a bit like you. If they were, people wouldn't believe in them. She draped herself on top of my desk among the pens and ink bottles and leaned towards me. In the other life, I used to write. You did, she nodded. But that has nothing to do with my present form. It might have, but I gave it up at last for that very reason and went to work as a reader on a magazine. She sighed and rubbed the end of her long eagle nose with a reminiscent finger. Those were terrible days. The memory of them made me mistake purgatory for paradise, and at last, when I attained my present state of being, I made up my mind that something should be done. I found others who had suffered similarly, and between us we organized the Writer's Inspiration Bureau. We scout around until we find a writer without ideas and with a mind soft enough to accept impression. The case is brought to the attention of the main office, and one of us assigned to it. When that case is finished, we bring in a report. But I never saw you before. And you wouldn't have this time if I hadn't come to announce the strike. Many a time I've leaned on your shoulder when you've thought you were thinking hard. I groaned and clutched my hair. The very idea of that horrible scarecrow so much is touching me. And wouldn't my wife be shocked? I shivered. But, she continued, that's at an end. We've been called out of our beds a little too often in recent years, and now we're through. But, my dear madam, I assure you I have had nothing to do with that. I hope I'm properly grateful in all that, you see. Oh, it isn't you, she explained patronizingly. It's those Ouija board fanatics. There was a time when we had nothing much to occupy us and used to haunt a little on the side, purely for amusement. But not any more. We've had to give up haunting almost entirely. We sit at a desk and answer questions now. And such questions. She shook her head hopelessly, and taking off her glasses, wiped them, and put them back on her nose again. But what have I got to do with this? She gave me a pitying look and rose. You're to exert your influence. Get all your friends and acquaintances to stop using the Ouija board, and then we'll start helping you to write. But... There was a footstep outside my door. John! Oh, John! called the voice of my wife. I waved my arms at the ghost with something of the motion of a beginner when learning to swim. Madam, I must ask you to leave, and at once. Consider the impression if you were seen here. The ghost nodded and began very sensibly, I thought, to demobilize and evaporate. First the brogans on her feet grew misty until I could see the floor through them, then the affection spread to her knees and gradually extended upward. By this time, my wife was opening the door. Don't forget the strike, she repeated, while her lower jaw began to disintegrate, and as my Lavinia crossed the room to me, the last vestige of her ear faded into space. John, why in the world are you sitting in the dark? Just thinking, my dear. Thinking rubbish. You were talking out loud. I remained silent while she lit the lamps, thankful that her back was turned to me. When I am nervous or excited, there is a muscle in my face that starts to twitch, and this pulls up one corner of my mouth and gives the appearance of an idiotic grin. So far I had managed to conceal this affliction from Lavinia. You know I bought the loveliest thing this afternoon. Everybody's wild over them. I remembered her craze for taking up new fads, and a premonitory chill crept up the back of my neck. It... it isn't... I began and stopped. I simply couldn't ask. The possibility was too horrible. You'd never guess in the world. It's the duckiest, darlingest Ouija board, and so cheap. I got it at a bargain sale. Why, what's the matter, John? I felt things slipping. Nothing, I said, and looked around for the ghost. Suppose she had lingered, and upon hearing what my wife had said should suddenly appear. Like all sensitive women, Lavinia was subject to hysterics but you looked so funny. I i always do when I'm interested, I gulped. But don't you think that was a foolish thing to buy? Foolish. Oh, John, foolish. And after me getting it for you. For me? What do you mean? To help you write your stories. Why, for instance, suppose you wanted to write an historical novel. You wouldn't have to wear your eyes out over those musty old books in the public library. All you'd have to do would be to get out your Ouija and talk to Napoleon, or William the Conqueror, or Helen of Troy. Well, maybe not Helen. Anyhow, you'd have all the local color you'd need, and without a speck of trouble. And think how easy writing your short stories will be now. But, Lavinia, you surely don't believe in Ouija boards. I don't know, John. They are awfully thrilling. She had seated herself on the arm of my chair, and was looking dreamily across the room. I started and turned around. There was nothing there, and I sank back with relief. So far, so good. Oh, certainly they're thrilling, all right. That's just it. They're a darn sight too thrilling. They're positively devilish. Now, Lavinia, you have plenty of sense, and I want you to get rid of that thing just as soon as you can. Take it back and get something else. My wife crossed her knees and stared at me through narrowed lids. John Halleck, she said distinctly. I don't propose to do anything of the kind. In the first place, they won't exchange things bought at a bargain sale, and in the second, if you aren't interested in the other world, I am. So there. And she slid down and walked from the room before I could think of a single thing to say. She walked very huffily. Well, it was like that all the rest of the evening. Just as soon as I mentioned Ouija boards, I felt things begin to cloud up so I decided to let it go for the present in the hope that she might be more reasonable later. After supper I had another try at the writing, but as my mind continued a perfect blank, I gave it up and went off to bed. The next day was Saturday, and it being near the end of the month and a particularly busy day, I left home early without seeing Lavinia. Understand, I haven't quite reached the point where I can give my whole time to writing, and being bookkeeper for a lumber company does help with the grocery bills and pay for Lavinia's fancy shopping. Friday had been a half-holiday, and of course when I got back the work was piled up pretty high. So high, in fact, that ghosts and stories and everything else vanished in a perfect tangle of figures. When I got off the streetcar that evening, my mind was still churning. I remember now that I noticed, even from the corner, how brightly the house was illuminated. But at the time, that didn't mean anything to me. I recall as I went up the steps and opened the door, I murmured, Nine times nine is eighty-one. And then Lavinia met me in the hall. John, dear, I thought you had gotten lost. I phoned you this morning to come home early, but there's no time to discuss it now. Please go up and make yourself ready for our company. Some memory of a message given me by one of the clerks filtered back through my brain, but I had been hunting three lost receipts at the time and had completely forgotten it. Company, I said stupidly. "'What company?' "'Why, my Ouija board party, of course,' said Lavinia, "'and it disappeared in the direction of the parlor. "'I must have gone upstairs and dressed and come down again, "'for I presently found myself standing in the dimly lighted lower hall "'wearing my second-best suit and a fresh shirt and collar, "'but I have no recollections of the process. "'There was a great chattering coming from our little parlor, "'and I went over to the half-opened door and peered through. "'The room was full of women.' most of them elderly, whom I recognized as belonging to my wife's book club. They were sitting in couples, and between each couple was a Ouija board. The mournful squeak of the legs of the moving triangular things on which they rested their fingers filled the air and mixed in with the conversation. I looked around for the ghosts with my heart sunk down to zero. What if Lavinia should see her and go mad before my eyes? And then my wife came and tapped me on the shoulder. John! she said in her sweetest voice, and I noticed that her cheeks were very pink and her eyes very bright. My wife is never so pretty as when she's doing something she knows I disapprove of. John, dear, I know you'll help us out. Mrs. William Augustus Wainwright phoned at the last moment to say that she couldn't possibly come, and that leaves poor Laura Hinkle without a partner. Now, John, I know some people can work a Ouija by themselves, but Laura can't and she'll just have a horrible time unless you— Me! I gasped. Me? I won't! But even as I spoke, she had taken my arm, and the next thing I knew I was sitting with the thing on my knees and Miss Laura Hinkle opposite, grinning in my face like a flirtatious crocodile. I—I won't! I began. Now, Mr. Halleck, don't you be shy! Miss Laura Hinkle leaned forward and shook a bony finger almost under my chin. I—I'm not! Only I say I won't, now it's very easy, really. You just put the tips of your fingers right here beside the tips of my fingers. And the first thing I knew, she had taken my hands and was coyly holding them in the position desired. She released them presently, and the little board began to slide around in an aimless sort of way. There seemed to be some force tugging it about. I looked at my partner, first with suspicion, and then with a vast relief. If she was doing it, then all that talk about spirits. Oh, I did hope Miss Laura Hinkle was cheating with that board. Ouija, dear, won't you tell us something? She cooed, and on the instant the thing seemed to take life. It rushed to the upper left-hand corner of the board and hovered with its front leg on the word yes. Then it began to fly around so fast that I gave up any attempt to follow it. My companion was bending forward and had started to spell out loud. T-R-A-I-T-O-R. Traitor. Why, what does she mean? I don't know, I said desperately. My collar felt very tight. But she must mean something. Ouija, dear, won't you explain yourself more fully? A-S-K-H-I-M. Ask him. Ask who, Ouija? I... I'm going, I choked and tried to get up, but my fingers seemed stuck to that dreadful board, and I dropped back again. Apparently Miss Hinkle had not heard my protest. The thing was going around faster than ever, and she was reading the message silently, with her brow corrugated, and the light of the huntress in her pale blue eyes. Why, she says it's you, Mr. Halleck. What does she mean? Ouija, won't you tell us who is talking? I groaned. But that inexorable board continued to spell. I always did hate a spelling match. Miss Hinkle was again following it aloud. H-E-L-E-N. Helen! She raised her voice until it could be heard at the other end of the room. Lavinia, dear, do you know anyone by the name of Helen? By the name of... I can't hear you. And my wife made her way over to us between the book club's chairs. You know the funniest thing has happened, she whispered excitedly. Someone had been trying to communicate with John through Mrs. Hunt's and Mrs. Sprinkles Ouija. Someone by the name of Helen. Why isn't that curious? What is? Miss Hinkle simpered. Someone giving the name of Helen has just been calling for your husband here. But we don't know anyone by the name of Helen, Lavinia stopped and began to look at me through narrowed lids, much as she had done in the library the evening before. And then from different parts of the room, other manipulators began to report. Every plagued one of those five Ouija boards was calling me by name. I felt my ears grow crimson, purple, maroon. My wife was looking at me as though I were some peculiar insect. The squeak of Ouija boards and the murmur of conversation rose louder and louder, and then I felt my face twitch in the spasm of that idiotic grin. I tried to straighten my wretched features into their usual semblance of humanity. I tried, and... "'Doesn't he look sly?' said Miss Hinkle. And then I got up and fled from the room. I do not know how that party ended. I do not want to know.' I went straight upstairs and undressed and crawled into bed and lay there in the burning dark while the last guest gurgled in the hall below about the wonderful evening she had spent. I lay there while the front door shut after her and the Lavinia's steps came up the stairs and passed the door to the guest room beyond. And then after a couple of centuries elapsed, the clock struck three and I dozed off to sleep. At the breakfast table the next morning, there was no sign of my wife. I concluded she was sleeping late. I was glad when the meal was over and hurried to the library for another try at that story. I had hardly seated myself at the desk when there came a tap at the door and a white slip of paper slid under it. I unfolded it and read, Dear John, I am going back to my grandmother. My lawyer will communicate with you later. Oh, I cried. Oh, I wish I was dead. And that's exactly what you ought to be said that horrible voice from the other end of the room. I sat up abruptly. I had sunk into a chair under the blow of the letter. Then I dropped back again, and my hair rose in a thick prickle on the top of my head. Coming majestically across the floor towards me was a highly polished pair of thick-laced shoes. I stared at them in a sort of dreadful fascination, and then something about their gait attracted my attention, and I recognized them. See here, I said sternly. What do you mean by appearing here like this? I can't help it, said the voice, which seemed to come from a point about five and a half feet above the shoes. I raised my eyes and presently distinguished her round and protruding mouth. Why can't you? A nice way to act, to walk in in sections. If you'll give me time, said the mouth in an exasperated voice, I assure you the rest of me will presently arrive. But what's the matter with you? You never acted this way before. She seemed stung to make a violent effort, for a portion of a fishy eye and the end of her nose popped into view with a suddenness that made me jump. It's all your fault, she glared at me, while part of her hair and her plaid skirt began slowly to take form. My fault? Of course! How can you keep a lady up working all night then expect her to retain all her faculties the next day? I'm just too tired to materialize. Then why did you bother? Because I was sent to ask when your wife is going to get rid of that Ouija board. How should I know? I wish to heaven I'd never seen you, I cried. Look what you've done. You've lost me, my wife. You've lost me, my home and happiness. I didn't come here to be abused, said the ghost coldly. And then the door opened and Lavinia entered. She wore the brown hat and coat she usually travels in and carried a suitcase which she set down on the floor. That suitcase had an air of solid finality about it, and its lock leered at me brassily. I leapt from my chair with unaccustomed agility and sprang in front of my wife. I must conceal that awful phantom from her at any risk. She did not look at me, or thank heaven behind me, but fixed her injured gaze upon the waste basket, as if to wrest dark secrets from it. I have come to tell you that I am leaving, she staccatoed. "'Oh, yes, yes,' I agreed, flapping my arms about to attract attention from the corner. "'That's fine. Great. So you want me to go, do you?' she demanded. "'Sure, yes, right away. Change of air will do you good. I'll join you presently. If only she would go till Helen could depart. I'd have the devil of a time explaining afterward, of course, but anything would be better than to have Lavinia see a ghost.' Why, that sensitive little woman couldn't bear to have a mouse say boo at her, and what would she say to a ghost in her own living room? Lavinia cast a cold eye upon me. You are acting very queerly, she sniffed. You are concealing something from me. John, there's not a bit of use trying to deceive me. What is it you are trying to conceal from me? Who, me? Oh, no, I lied elaborately, looking around to see if that dratted ghost was concealed enough. She was so big, and I am rather a smallish man. But that was a bad move on my part. John, Lavinia demanded like a ward boss. You are hiding somebody in here. Who is it? I only waved a denial and gurgled in my throat. She went on. It's bad enough to have you flirt over the Ouija board with that hussy. Oh, the affair was quite above board, I assure you, my love, I cried, leaping lively about to keep her from focusing her gaze behind me. She thrust me back with sudden muscle. I will see who is behind you. Where is that Helen? Me? I'm Helen, came from the ghost. Lavinia looked at that apparition, that owl eyed phantom in plaid skirt and stiff shirtwaist, with hair skewed back and no powder on her nose. I threw a protecting husbandly arm about her to catch her when she should faint, but she didn't swoon. A broad, satisfied smile spread over her face. I thought you were Helen of Troy she murmured. I used to be Helen of Troy, New York, said the ghost, and now I'll be moving along if you'll excuse me. See you later. With that, she telescoped briskly till we saw only a hand waving farewell. My Lavinia fell forgivingly into my arms. I kissed her once or twice fervently, and then I shoved her aside, for I felt a sudden strong desire to write. The sheets of paper on my desk spread invitingly before me. I've got the bulliest plot for a ghost story, I cried. Odds are you wouldn't have noticed that I removed the character unless I told you. Did you also notice that the question of the Ouija board never gets resolved and Helen just simply leaves? That's because of some choice throwaway dialogue by the cook. The whole point of the cook is that she quits because she won't be in the same house as a Ouija board. She... Ain't staying around no place long with them Ouija board contraptions, is the actual line. She shows up to quit while John and Lavinia are having their spat, so Lavinia immediately agrees to throw it out, which is why Helen is all of a sudden happy to just take off. The whole thing is done in such a throwaway fashion that it almost feels like the cook was added as an afterthought, because Elsie didn't know how to get around to solving the issue organically. The dialogue is written in an unfortunate dialect and rife with racial slurs. You can look it up if you're curious, and I'll also post my marked-up manuscript on Patreon so you can check out the changes. Feel free to let me know your thoughts, if the story still works, and how you might have handled it. I don't quite remember when this was written, so I can't give you the cultural context, but it was after the Civil War and Emancipation. Next up is our serialized story, "Bear Trap." Bear Trap by Alan E. Norse Part 1 The huge troop transport plane eased down through the rainy drizzle enshrouding New York International Airport at about 5 o'clock in the evening. Tom Shandor glanced sourly through the port at the wet landing strip saw the dim landing lights reflected in the steaming puddles. On an adjacent field he could see the rows and rows of jet fighters, wings up in the foggy rain, poised like ridiculous birds in the darkness. With a sigh he ripped the sheet of paper from the small, battered, portable typewriter on his lap and zipped the machine up in its slicker case. Across the troop hold the soldiers were beginning to stir, yawning, shifting their packs, collecting their gear. Occasionally they stared at Shandor as if he were totally alien to their midst, and he shivered a little as he collected the sheets of paper scattered on the deck around him, checked the date, September twenty-seventh, 1982, and rolled them up to fit in the slim round mailing container. Ten minutes later he was shouldering his way through the crowd of khaki-clad men, scowling up at the sky, his nondescript fedora jammed down over his eyes to keep out the rain, slicker collar pulled up about his ears. At the gangway, he stopped before a tired-looking lieutenant and flashed the small fluorescent card in his palm. Public information board. The officer nodded wearily and gave his coat and typewriter a cursory check, then motioned him on. He strode across the wet field, scowling at the fog, toward the dimmed-out waiting rooms. He found a mailing chute and popped the mailing tube down the slot as if he were glad to be rid of it. Into the speaker he said, Special delivery, PIB business. It goes to press tonight. The female voice from the speaker said something, and the red clear signal blinked. Shandor slipped off his hat and shook it, then stopped at a coffee machine and extracted a cup of steaming stuff from the bottom after trying the coin three times. Finally, he walked across the room to an empty video booth and sank down into the chair with an exhausted sigh. Flipping a switch, he waited several minutes for an operator to appear. He gave her a number and then said, Let's scramble it, please. "'Official?' He showed her the card and settled back, his whole body tired. He was a tall man, rather slender, with flat, bland features punctuated only by blond, carrot shaped eyebrows. His gray eyes were heavy-lidded now, his mouth an expressionless line as he waited, sunk back into his coat with a long-cultivated air of lifeless boredom. He watched the screen without interest as it bleeped a time or two, then shifted into the familiar scrambled image pattern. After a moment, he muttered the public information board audio code words and saw the screen even out into the clear image of a large, heavyset man at a desk. Art, said Shandor. Story's on its way. I just dropped it from the airport a minute ago with a rush tag on it. You should have it for the morning editions. The big man in the screen blinked and his heavy face lit up. The story on the rocket project? Shandor nodded. The whole scoop. I'm going home now. He started his hand for the cutoff switch. Wait a minute. Hart picked up a pencil and fiddled with it for a moment. He glanced over his shoulder and his voice dropped a little. Is the line scrambled? Shandor nodded. What's the scoop, boy? How's the rocket project coming? Shandor grinned wryly. Read the report, daddy. Everything's just ducky, of course. It's all ready for press. You've got the story. Why should I repeat it? Hart scowled impatiently. No, no, I mean the scoop. The real stuff. How's the project going? Not so hot. Shandor's face was weary. Material cutoff is holding them up something awful, among other things. The sabotage has really fouled up the West Coast trains and shipments haven't been coming through on schedule. You know, they ask for one thing and get the wrong weight, or their supplier is out of material, or something goes wrong. And there's personnel trouble, too too much direction and too little work. It's beginning to look as if they'll never get going. And now it looks like there's going to be another administration shake-up. You know what that means. Hart nodded thoughtfully. They'd better get hopping, he muttered. The conference in Berlin is on the skids. It could be ours now. He looked up. But you got the story rigged all right. Shandor's face flattened in distaste. Sure, sure. You know me, Hart. Anything to keep the people happy. Everything's running as smooth as satin, work going fine, expect a test run in a month... And we should be on the moon in half a year, more or less, maybe, we hope. The usual swill. I'll be in to work out the war stories in the morning. Right now I'm for bed. He snapped off the video before Hart could interrupt and started for the door. The rain hit him as he stepped out with a wave of cold, wet depression, but a cab slid up to the curb before him and he stepped in. Sinking back, he tried to relax to get his stomach to stop complaining but he couldn't fight the feeling of almost physical illness sweeping over him. He closed his eyes and sank back, trying to drive the ever-plaguing thoughts from his mind, trying to focus on something pleasant, almost hoping that his long-starved conscience might give a final gasp or two and die altogether. But deep in his mind, he knew that his screaming conscience was almost the only thing that held him together. Lies, he thought to himself bitterly. White lies, black lies, whoppers— You could take your choice. There should be a flaming neon sign flashing across the sky, telling all people, Public Information Board, Fabrication Corporation, fabricating of all lies neatly and expeditiously done. He squirmed, feeling the rebellion grow in his mind. Propaganda, they called it. A nice word, such a very handy word, covering a multitude of seething pots. PIB was the grand clearinghouse, the last censor of censors. And he, Tom Shandor, was the chief fabricator and purveyor of lies. He shook his head, trying to get a breath of clean air in the damp cab. Sometimes he wondered where it was leading, where it would finally end up, what would happen if the people ever really learned or ever listened to the clever ones who tried to sneak the truth into print somewhere. But people couldn't be told the truth. They had to be coddled, urged, pushed along. They had to be kept somehow happy, somehow hopeful, They had to be kept whipped up to fever pitch because the long, long years of war and near war had exhausted them, wearied them beyond natural resiliency. No, they had to be spiked, urged, and goaded. What would happen if they learned? He sighed. No one, it seemed, could do it as well as he. No one could take a story of bitter diplomatic fighting in Berlin and simmer it down to a public, palatable, peaceful, and progressive meeting No one could quite so skillfully reduce the bloody fighting in India to a mild enemy losses topping American losses twenty to one, and our boys are fighting staunchly, bravely. No one could write out the lies quite so neatly, so smoothly as Tom Shandor. The cab swung into his house, and he stepped out, tipped the driver, and walked up the walk, eager for the warm, dry room. Coffee helped sometimes when he felt this way, but other things helped even more. He didn't even take his coat off before mixing and down in a stiff rye and ginger, and he was almost forgetting his unhappy conscience by the time the video began blinking. He flipped the receiver switch and sat down groggily, blinked at John Hart's heavy face as it materialized on the screen. Hart's eyes were wide, his voice tight and nervous as he leaned forward. You'd better get into the office pronto, he said, his eyes bright. You've really got a story to work on now. Shandor blinked. The war... Hart took a deep breath. Worse, he said. David Ingersoll is dead. Tom Shandor shouldered his way through the crowd of men in the anteroom room and went into the inner office. Closing the door behind him coolly, he faced the man at the desk and threw a thumb over his shoulder. Who are the goons? he growled. You haven't released a story yet. John Hart sighed, his pinkish face drawn. The press. I don't know how they got the word. There hasn't been a word released, but... He shrugged and motioned Shandor to a seat. You know how it goes. Shandor sat down, his face blank, eyeing the information chief woodenly. The room was silent for a moment, a tense, anticipatory silence. Then Hart said, The rocket story was great, Tommy. A real writing job. You've got the touch when it comes to a ticklish news release. Shandor allowed an expression of distaste to cross his face. He looked at the chubby man across the desk and felt the distaste deepen and crystallize. John Hart's face was round, with little lines going up from the eyes—an almost grotesque, burlesque, comic face that belied the icy, practical nature of the man behind it. A thoroughly distasteful face, Shandor thought. Finally, he said, "The story, John. I'm Ingersoll. Let's have it straight out." Hart shrugged his stocky shoulders, spreading his hands. "Ingersoll's dead." he said. That's all there is to it. He's stone cold dead. But he can't be dead, roared Shandor, his face flushed. We just can't afford to have him dead. Hart looked up wearily. Look, I didn't kill him. He went home from the White House this evening, apparently sound enough, after a long, stiff, nasty conference with the President. Ingersoll wanted to go to Berlin and call a showdown at the international conference there, and he had a policy brawl with the president, and the president wouldn't let him go, sent an undersecretary instead, and threatened to kick Ingersoll out of the cabinet unless he quieted down. Ingersoll got home at 4.30, collapsed at 5, and he was dead before the doctor arrived. Cerebral hemorrhage, pretty straightforward. Ingersoll's been killing himself for years. He knew it, and everyone else in Washington knew it. It was bound to happen sooner or later. He was trying to prevent the war, said Chandor Dully, and he was all by himself. Nobody else wanted to stop it, nobody that mattered at any rate. Only the people didn't want war, and whoever listens to them. Ingersoll got the people behind him, so they gave him a couple of Nobel Peace Prizes and made him Secretary of State, They cut his throat every time he tried to do anything. No wonder he's dead. Hart shrugged again, eloquently indifferent. So he was a nice guy. He wanted to prevent a war. As far as I'm concerned, he was a pain in the neck, the way he was forever jumping down information's throat. But he's dead now. He isn't around anymore. His eyes narrowed sharply. The important thing, Tommy, is that the people won't like it that he's dead. They trusted him. He's been the people's golden boy, their last-ditch hope for peace. If they think their last chance is gone with his death, they're going to be mad. They won't like it, and there'll be hell to pay. Shandor lit a smoke with trembling fingers, his eyes smoldering. So the people have to be eased out of the picture, he said flatly. They've got to get the story so they won't be so angry. Hart nodded, grinning. They've got to have a real story, Tommy. Big, blown up. What a great guy he was. Defender of the peace. Greatest, most influential man America has turned out since the half century. You know what they lap up, the usual garbage, only on a slightly higher plane. They've got to think that he's really saved them, that he's turned over the reins to other hands just as trustworthy as is. You can give the president a big hand there. They've got to think his work is the basis of our present foreign policy. Can't you see the implications? It's got to be spread on with a trowel, laid on skillfully. Shandor's face flushed deep red, and he ground the stub of his smoke out viciously. I'm sick of this stuff, Hart, he exploded. I'm sick of you, and I'm sick of this whole rotten setup, this business of writing reams and reams of lies just to keep things under control. Ingersoll was a great man, a really great man, and he was wasted, thrown away. He worked to make peace, and he got laughed at. He hasn't done a thing because he couldn't. Everything he has tried has been useless, wasted. That's the truth. Why not tell that to the people? Hart stared. Get hold of yourself, he snapped. You know your job. There's a story to write. The life of David Ingersoll. It has to go down smooth. His dark eyes shifted to his hands and back sharply to Shandor. A propagandist has to write it, Tommy. An ace propagandist. You're the only one I know that could do the job. Not me, said Shandor flatly, standing up. Count me out. I'm through with this as of now. Get yourself some other whipping boy. Ingersoll was one man the people could trust, and he was one man I could never face. I'm not good enough for him to spit on, and I'm not going to sell him down the river now that he's dead. With a little sigh, John Hart reached into the desk. That's very odd, he said softly, because Ingersoll left a message for you. Shandor snapped about, eyes wide. Message? The chubby man handed him a small envelope. Apparently he wrote that a long time ago told his daughter to send it to Public Information Board immediately in event of his death. Read it. Shandor unfolded the thin paper and blinked, unbelieving. In event of my death during the next few months, a certain amount of biographical writing will be inevitable. It is my express wish that this writing, in whatever form it may take, be done by Mr. Thomas L. Shandor, staff writer of the Federal Public Information Board. I believe that man alone is qualified to handle this assignment. Signed, David P. Ingersoll, Secretary of State, United States of America. June 4th, 1981. Shandor read the message a second time, then folded it carefully and placed it in his pocket, his forehead creased. I suppose you want the story to be big, he said dully. Hart's eyes gleamed a moment of triumph. As big as you can make it, he said eagerly. Don't spare time or effort, Tommy. You'll be relieved of all assignments until you have it done. If you'll take it. Oh, yes, said Shandor softly. I'll take it. He landed the small PIB copter on an airstrip in the outskirts of Georgetown, haggled with the security officials for a few moments, and grabbed an old weather-beaten cab, giving the address of the Ingersoll estate as he settled back in the cushions. A small radio was set inside the door. He snapped it on, fiddled with the dial until he found a PIB news report and as he listened, he felt his heart sink lower and lower, and the old familiar feeling of dirtiness swept over him, the feeling of being a part in an enormous, overpowering scheme of corruption and degradation. The Berlin conference was reaching a common meeting ground, the report said, with Russian, Chinese, and American officials making the first real progress in the week of talks. Hope rising for an early armistice on the Indian front. Suddenly he hunched forward, blinking in surprise as the announcer continued the broadcast. The Secretary of State, David Ingersoll, was stricken with a slight head cold this evening on the eve of his departure for the Berlin Conference, and was advised to postpone the trip temporarily. John Harris Darby, first Under Secretary, was dispatched in his place. Mr. Ingersoll expressed confidence that Mr. Darby would be able to handle the talks as well as himself in view of the optimistic trend in Berlin last night. Shandor snapped the radio off viciously, a roar of disgust rising in his throat, cut off just in time. Lies, lies, lies. Some people knew they were lies. What could they really think? People like David Ingersoll's wife. Carefully, he reined in his thoughts, channeled them. He had called the Ingersoll home the night before, announcing his arrival this morning. The taxi ground up a graveled driveway, stopped before an army jeep at the iron-grilled gateway. A security officer flipped a cigarette onto the ground, shaking his head. Can't go in, secretary's orders. Shandor stepped from the cab, briefcase under his arm. He showed his card, scowled when the officer continued shaking his head. Orders say nobody. Look, Blockhead, Shandor grated. If you want to hang by your toes, I can put through a special check line to Washington to confirm my appointment here. I'll also recommend you for the salt mines. The officer growled, wise guy, and shuffled into the guard shack. Minutes later, he appeared again, jerked his thumb toward the estate. Take off, he said. See that you check here at the gate before you leave. He was admitted to the huge house by a stone-faced butler who led him through a maze of corridors into a huge dining room. Morning sunlight gleamed through a glass thin wall and Shandor stopped at the door, almost speechless. He knew he'd seen the girl somewhere, at one of the Washington parties or in the newspapers. Her face was unmistakable. It was the sort of face that a man never forgets once he glimpses it, Thin, puckish, with wide-set gray eyes that seemed both somber and secretly amused, a full-sensitive mouth, and blonde hair, exceedingly fine, cropped close about her ears. She was eating her breakfast, a rolled-up newspaper by her plate, and as she looked up, her eyes were not warm. She just stared at Shandor angrily for a moment, then set down her coffee cup and threw the paper to the floor with a slam. You're Shandor, I suppose. Shandor looked at the paper, then back at her. Yes, I'm Tom Shandor. But you're not Mrs. Ingersoll. A profound observation. Mother isn't interested in seeing anyone this morning, particularly you. She motioned to a chair. You can talk to me if you want to. Shandor sank down in the proffered seat, struggling to readjust his thinking. Well, he said finally, I... I wasn't expecting you, he broke into a grin, but I should think you could help. You know what I'm trying to do. "'I mean about your father. "'I want to write a story and a logical place to start would be with his family.' "'The girl blinked wide eyes innocently. "'Why don't you start with the newspaper files?' she asked, her voice silky. "'You'd find all sorts of information about Daddy there, pages and pages. "'No, no, I don't want that kind of information. "'You're his daughter, Miss Ingersoll. "'You could tell me about him as a man. "'Something about his personal life, what sort of man he was.' She shrugged indifferently, buttered a piece of toast, as Shandor felt most acutely the pangs of his own missed breakfast. He got up at seven every morning, she said. He brushed his teeth and ate breakfast. At nine o'clock the State Department called for him. Shandor shook his head unhappily. No, no, that's not what I mean. Then perhaps you'd tell me precisely what you do mean. Her voice was clipped and hard. Shandor sighed in exasperation. The personal angle his likes and dislikes, how he came to formulate his views, his relationship with his wife, with you. He was a kind and loving father, she said, her voice mocking. He loved to read. He loved music. Oh, yes, put that down. He was a great lover of music. His wife was the apple of his eye, and he tried for all the duties of his position to provide us with a happy home life. Miss Ingersoll, she stopped in mid-sentence, her gray eyes veiled, and shook her head slightly. That's not what you want, either? Shandor stood up and walked to a window, looking out over the wide veranda. Carefully, he snubbed his cigarette in an ashtray, then turned sharply to the girl. Look, if you want to play games, I can play games, too. Either you're going to help me or you're not. It's up to you. But you forget one thing. I'm a propagandist. I might say I'm a very expert propagandist. I can tell a true story from a false one. You won't get anywhere lying to me or evading me, and if you choose to try, we can call it off right now. You know exactly the type of information I need from you. Your father was a great man, and he rates a fair shake in the write-ups. I am asking you to help me. Her lips formed a sneer. And you're going to give him a fair shake, I'm supposed to believe. She pointed to the newspaper. With garbage like that? Head cold. Her face flushed, and she turned her back angrily. I know your writing, Mr. Shandor. I've been exposed to it for years. You've never written an honest, true story in your life, but you always want the truth to start with, don't you? I'm to give you the truth and let you do what you want with it. Is that the idea? No dice, Mr. Shandor, and you even have the gall to brag about it. Shandor flushed angrily. You're not being fair. This story is going to press straight and true every word of it. This is one story that won't be altered. And then she was laughing, choking, holding her sides as the tears streamed down her cheeks. Shandor watched her, reddening, anger growing up to choke him. I'm not joking, he snapped. I'm breaking with the routine, do you understand? I'm through with the lies now. I'm writing this one straight. She wiped her eyes and looked at him, bitter lines under her smile. You couldn't do it, she said, still laughing. You're a fool to think so. You could write it, and you'd be out of a job so fast you wouldn't know what hit you. But you'd never get it into print, and you'd know it. You'd never even get the story to the inside offices. Shandor stared at her. That's what you think, he said slowly. This story will get to the press if it kills me. The girl looked up at him, eyes wide, incredulous. You mean that, don't you? I never meant anything more in my life. She looked at him wonderingly motioned him to the table, a faraway look in her eyes. Have some coffee, she said, and then turned to him, her eyes wide with excitement. The sneer was gone from her face, the coldness and hostility, and her eyes were pleading. If there was some way to do it, if you really meant what you said, if you'd really do it, give people a true story. Shandor's voice was low. I told you, I'm sick of this mill. There's something wrong with this country, something wrong with the world. There's a rottenness in it, and your father was fighting to cut out the rottenness. This story is going to be straight, and it's going to be printed if I get shot for treason, and it could split things wide open at the seams. She sat down at the table. Her lower lip trembled, and her voice was tense with excitement. Let's get out of here, she said. Let's go someplace where we can talk. They found a quiet place off the business section in Washington one of the newer places with the small closed booths catering to people weary of eavesdropping and overheard conversations. Shandor ordered beers and lit a smoke and leaned back facing Anne Ingersoll. It occurred to him that she was exceptionally lovely, but he was almost frightened by the look on her face, the suppressed excitement, the cold, bitter lines about her mouth. Incongruously, the thought crossed his mind that he'd hate to have this woman against him. She looked as though she would be capable of more than he'd care to tangle with. For all her lovely face, there was an edge of thin ice to her smile, a razor-sharp, dangerous quality that made him curiously uncomfortable. But now she was nervous, withdrawing a cigarette from his pack with trembling fingers, fumbling with his lighter until he struck a match for her. Now, he said, why the secrecy? She glanced at the closed door to the booth. Mother would kill me if she knew I was helping you. She hates you and she hates the public information board. I think Dad hated you, too. Shandor took the folded letter from his pocket. Then what do you think of this? He asked softly. Doesn't this strike you a little odd? She read Ingersoll's letter carefully, then looked up at Tom, her eyes wide with surprise. So this is what that note was. This doesn't wash, Tom. You're telling me it doesn't wash. Notice the wording. I believe that man alone is qualified to handle this assignment. Why me? And of all things, why me alone? He knew my job, and he fought me in the PIB every step of his career. Why a note like this? She looked up at him. Do you have any idea? Sure, I've got an idea. A crazy one, but an idea. I don't think he wanted me because of the writing. I think he wanted me because I'm a propagandist. She scowled. It still doesn't wash. There are lots of propagandists. And why would he want a propagandist? Chandor's eyes narrowed. Let's let it ride for a moment. How about his files? In his office in the State Department. He didn't keep anything personal at home? Her eyes grew wide. Oh no, he wouldn't have dared. Not the sort of work he was doing. With his files under lock and key in the State Department, nothing could be touched without his knowledge. But at home, anybody might have walked in. Of course. How about enemies? Did he have any particular enemies? She laughed humorlessly. Name anybody in the current administration. I think he had more enemies than anybody else in the cabinet. Her mouth turned down bitterly. He was a stumbling block. He got in people's way and they hated him for it. They killed him for it. Shandor's eyes widened. You mean you think he was murdered? Oh no, nothing so crude. They didn't have to be crude. They just let him butt his head against a stone wall. Everything he tried was blocked, or else it didn't lead anywhere. Like this Berlin conference. It's a powder keg. Dad gambled everything on going there, forcing the delegates to face facts, to really put their cards on the table. Ever since the United Nations fell apart in 72, Dad had been trying to get America and Russia to sit at the same table. But the president cut him out at the last minute. It was planned that way, to let him get up to the very brink of it, and then slap him down hard. They did it all along. This was just the last he could take. Shandor was silent for a moment. Any particular thorns on his side? Anne shrugged. Munitions people, mostly. Dartmouth-Baring had a pressure lobby that was trying to throw him out of the cabinet. The president sided with them, but he didn't dare do it for fear the people would squawk. He was planning to blame the failure of the Berlin Conference on Dad and get him ousted that way. Shandor stared. But if that conference fails, we're in full-scale war. Of course, that's the whole point. She scowled at her glass, blinking back tears. Dad could have stopped it, but they wouldn't let him. It killed him, Tom. Shandor watched the smoke curling up from his cigarette. Look, he said, I've got an idea, and it's going to take some fast work. That conference could blow up any minute, and then I think we're going to be in real trouble— I want you to go to your father's office and get the contents of his personal file. Not the business files, his personal files. Put them in a briefcase and Subway Express them to your home. If you have any trouble, have them check with PIB. We have full authority and I'm it right now. I'll call them and give them the word. Then meet me here again with the files at 7.30 this evening. She looked up, her eyes wide. What? What are you going to do? Shandor snubbed out his smoke. His eyes bright. I've got an idea that we may be onto something, just something I want to check. But I think if we work it right, we can lay those boys that fought your father out by the toes. Alan E. Norse is a bit more contemporary than we usually feature. He was a doctor who wrote sci-fi to pay his way through medical school and continued writing throughout his career. Normally, you'd think the financing would be the other way around. He wrote for all the sci-fi magazines of the 50s and 60s that went under, leaving copyrights to expire, which is why I can bring you some of his short stories. This particular story was published in the December 1957 issue of Fantastic Universe. It's always fascinating to get a look at how the future is represented. According to this, we were supposed to have video phones in the late 80s, and we did, kind of, but they never really took off. This was when the space race was really heating up, right after Sputnik launched, but before the Soviet Union got the first man into space, hence the U.S. versus Russia theme. Really, though, all throughout the Cold War, the Russians were usually the villains. Next week, we get more to this story, as well as finding out the truth behind a beloved Mickey Mouse cartoon. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find The Mayor Zine at com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund The Mayor Zine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.